This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Hi, this is Nick in London. And this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. All right, well, yeah, it's, it's been a while. It has been a while. It's a couple of weeks since we last spoke. And I noticed that one of the things that we talked about a bit in the last show, the Swift archival serialization coding stuff, is now suddenly real. Like it was being worked on, and now it's actually a real thing and part of Swift 4. It is, yeah. It seems a, a nice implementation from, from what I've seen. A lot of the Swift segments, of course, were already known before right. the announcement sessions. But since it's had a nice formal announcement, and I think they did a pretty good job of highlighting some of the, the interesting parts, and that was one of them. Yeah, I think, I think it's nice because it lets people do things you know, along the lines of what ThoughtBout did with Argo and many, many others did with many, many other Swift parsing tools, but without having to build your own stuff or include a library it's just built into the language in a way that is sensible and extendable i approve yeah i'm all for not having to include more libraries where we can and this should be nice for for certain scenarios at least i know my current client project is using argo and it's quite a lot and it's just i think there are many many models being parsed and each compile takes a long time and it's partly you know not, not entirely but partly due to that I'm actually kind of looking forward to Xcode 9 improving some of that as well, because this particular project is a blend of Objective-C and Swift, right? and there's just a lot of inefficiencies there and how Xcode 8 works with that. And supposedly the new build system will be better, according to what Apple has said, but we haven't tried it yet. Yeah, I've not tried it yet either. Uh, some of the interesting things has been some of the things they've kind of pulled from Swift Playgrounds, and I'm curious mm -hmm. to see what that's going to be like as... As someone who doesn't Swift very often, so right. I, I kind of forget some of the like the really basic syntax every every so often. And <laughs> sure. they, they, they've added stuff like quick drop downs for adding like an if else statement and so forth. So that could be handy, mm, right? Yeah, and things for filling in all the like all the values in a in an enum. Yeah, if you're doing inside a switch, things like that seem handy, and it's the kind of thing that. Like, sadly, if Xcode had a usable and supported third-party plugin system, like, somebody would have solved that years ago. <laughs> it's <laughs> right, kind of frustrating absolutely. that we're, we're in a world where we are like, oh, hooray, we have this thing that, like, any language tool would have had from the start, right? What, like refactoring? Yes, for, for <laughs> instance. <laughs> I don't know if I told you, in January this year, I was working on a project... It was a Unity project, and we were using Writer, which is a tool from, what is it, JetBrains, I think? Right. It's one of the same companies that does these tools for a lot of things for Java. And they have several different IDEs for different kind of languages and tools. They got their start in Java. And I this is the first time I d ever used any of these at all. And I, you know, this is for C Sharp, and I was like, okay, well, the other developer on the project, he wanted to give it a try. And I was like, great, sure, fire it up. And... It was actually amazing. Like the things that that could do in terms of refactoring, there are things that 
before I used it, I thought, okay, yeah, that's not, if I, if I would have read that as a, as a feature, I would have thought that sounds nice to have, but ah, I've done fine without it so far. But once I had it in front of me, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It had things like a file full of C-sharp code and at the top are a bunch of imports and it will tell you, okay, these three imports, they're not being used. You can just remove them. It's like, okay, click, they're gone. It says, oh, this uh, instance method that you've got, it's not using any instant mem- instance members at all. You can make it a static function. Huh, oh, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's actually... <laughs> and, and of course, this is stuff that, of course, the compiler knows. You know, when I'm sure the Swift compiler, when it's compiling and linking stuff, it has all that information. Yeah. But it's not quite filtering back to the level of feeding back into the Xcode UI in an interesting way so that it can inform you this. I don't know. It was, it was just, it was pretty impressive. And for, for me, it was kind of eye-opening because I've heard people talk about JetBrains and all these other things that I've never used because it's mostly Java, but I, they have a Mac one too. Yeah, they have, they have a, it's or, called or an app code. thing. App code, thank you. I, I've not used it. I always feel no. a bit strange to you end up having to switch between two IDEs because at least the last time I looked at it, at least it didn't support interface builder so you'd have to jump between xcode and app code for nibs or and or storyboards whichever that you're using and that seems super annoying because that was one of the very nice things in xcode 4 when that finally came was say finally hooray yeah finally integrated in the tool we're using for the code and now it's like oh wait let's try another another code for the other tool for the code that does not work with interface builder yeah so I've, i've never tried it and partly because of exactly what you're saying. It's like, that feels like a nuisance. I'd rather just not deal with that nuisance. But now that I've actually played with Rider a bit, I think I might give AppCode a try one of these days, just to sort of see what it's like. Because again, just the refactorings were pretty pretty amazing. None of them are features that I would have thought to ask for. Like, I wonder if this if if you could do this in an ID. Like, it never had occurred to me that you know to have an ID that would be smart enough to tell you that this import is not needed or this member function could be a static function. Yeah, it was it was very cool. And I can't remember the other things. I mean, it's been half a year. I don't remember, but I remember there were there were several. I had several aha moments. And part of the aha moments actually this was the fact that. A lot of these things were implemented by plugins or could be implemented by plugins. And things like, oh, you want to use Vim editing? Okay, install the Vim plugin. You know, oh, you want to integrate with Unity? Okay, you install the Unity plugin. These are all open source third party plugins. I think maybe the Unity plugin was maybe made by them or maybe made by Unity, I don't remember. But it was still open source. Anybody can fix it and work on it. And, you know, the IDE hosted those plugins, was glad to have them, had a UI for interacting with them, for installing them, for finding them. And it's just so different from Xcode. It's always been, nope. And like even when Alcatraz was a usable thing for a while before Xcode got tighter about its permissions, still, it was never, there was never a really big ecosystem there. Probably because it was so hard to work with. You had to kind of create your plugin from a specific Xcode example project was kind of the only way to get it to work. And you have to keep reloading Xcode so that you could get something to work. And you were mostly shooting in the dark because there's no documentation. And if you get it wrong, everyone's editor is going to crash. And it's really hard to work out (laughs) what the origin of that was. And so, yeah, as soon as, as soon as it became more difficult, I I guess everyone started going, oh, oh, let's maybe not, not bother after all. 
Yeah, it's a very different thing when the IDE says, here's some APIs. Here's how you can interface with the code view and the code itself and the, you know, whatever, all the parts of it. And I always, I'm always kind of hoping that maybe this will be the year when <laughs> Apple does something about this next code. And this year is still not the year. No, the one thing we can say, we do at least have some refactoring that we definitely didn't have before. Yes. And much more impressive auto-fixing support, which hopefully might be as good as it suggests. So I'm quite excited yeah, about that. But even then, I don't think it's a, it's not as broad as it could potentially be. Yeah, it's not really a huge leap forward from what I've seen. I mean, that's okay too. It's okay that it's moving forward. Most people that I've heard who have been using Xcode 9 to some degree, seem to be pretty happy with it. I've heard no people who are using Xcode 9, at least trying to use it for their daily work, and then switch to Xcode 8 when they want to actually build and submit to the App Store. Because as long as you stick to the Swift 3.2 language and don't use any Swift 4 features, all those things will compile identically in Xcode 8. Mm. So that sounds promising. I haven't really tried it yet, mostly because the... The thing I've, made, I've spent most of my time on lately is this customer project where it's a very big project, a very a big mix of Objective-C and Swift, and some of the code is in CocoaPods, and some of the code is in a big monster library that's compiled separately and pulled in with Carthage. So there's a lot, there's a lot of complications there that I, I, I suspect will just make it a bear to even get compiling in Xcode 9, like just because. Not because they're doing anything wrong, but just because... Any major version change of Xcode, there's going to be headaches with that kind of thing. Although, who knows? I could be I could be pleasantly surprised. I haven't just tried it. Maybe I'll just fire it up and see what it does. Maybe it will just work. Maybe it will. Maybe this is the one major version change, which doesn't <laughs> ruin some random thing, and you don't have to sit and figure out what, what was causing that. That's right. And like, and I'm sitting here. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Like Now I'm just like, at this point, I'm just like, nah, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna work I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm up to your game i'm not trying this time yeah. and that's like, no really there really is a wolf now <laughs> <laughs> thinking of swift 4 something i'm quite interested in is how we'll now be able to use two different language modes at the same time mm. that should be helpful for refactoring as a longer term thing rather than having to having everyone to hold still for like a week so one person can sit and convert everything from one version to <laughs> right. the other whilst everyone's going why is this necessary this is really annoying yep that should be a very good thing i don't know if that extends if that reaches sort of back into time back into the present time at least to support things built with swift 3.1 like if I have an external library built with Swift 3.1, built in Xcode 8, can I pull that into a project built in Xcode 9? Or is that still going to expect me to build it that separate project in Xcode 9 in, in Swift 3 mode? As far as I understand, you need to compile it to 3.2. Okay. But there aren't many changes between 0.1 and 0.2. So hopefully right. that shouldn't be too painful. Right. As far as I understand, the introduce it with 3.2, they've mostly introduced the ability to do the language mode and backports a few things from Swift 4. So hopefully right. it won't be such a burden to do. Yeah, well, we'll see, I guess. I'm curious about that one aspect of that they backported some things from Swift 4 into 3.2. And I haven't looked at it enough. And actually... To be honest, this year is I've this is my worst ever WWDC viewing 
year. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched very, very little of it. And which is surprising because now it now we have this wealth of information. The videos are posted quickly and a lot of them are streamed live. And in the time zones that you and I are in, it means we can watch it in the evening after work when it's happening live. Yeah. And for some reason this year, I just didn't. I was just like, ah. Nah, I'll watch it later. I've watched a, I've watched a couple of sessions, like literally, I think two sessions, <laughs> and it's kind of sad. But maybe I'll have some more time this summer. I've watched a couple so far. I watched most of them on a, a train journey from from London down to Plymouth in Devon when I was going to mm. a conference, and that was easy because I was sat on a train and with basically no sure. internet and my laptop, and I had I downloaded right. them all beforehand, and I, was, I sat and watched them through. So that worked just yeah i actually have preloaded several onto my iphone just ready to go but i haven't actually watched them yet i find them quite hard to watch because i don't just sit and passively watch them i sit and make mm. notes at the same time so i mm -hmm. have pages and pages of notes which is fine but it means that the burden to sit and listen to them is a bit higher it's a bit like listening to lectures i kind of take the same approach well it's good though i mean writing notes helps you retain it right it helps you remember what what you saw and what you heard. Yeah, otherwise everything would go in one ear and go straight back out the other ear and I'd be none the wiser about what I'd actually been listening to because listening to someone right. talk That's... about programming for an hour is difficult enough as it is. Yeah, I usually follow the in one ear and out, out the other approach. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and then I have to look back and say, did I really watch this one? Oh, right, it was that one. Oh, I kind of remember. <laughs> it's, but I think with a lot of these things, it's usually not until I really start to use it that it really starts to stick in my brain anyway. It's one thing to watch and there's nothing to start using it. And then also, of course, I often have the problem where I I see something it's like, wow, that's really cool. And I go and try it out and quickly discover that the Xcode beta that they've given us to use from the start doesn't have the features that the people who are demoing stuff always has at the conference. And this is typically, for me especially, I get burned every year on SpriteKit. They right. show some great new things you can do in the scene editor. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I try it and it's just... It just crashes or that feature is not available somehow. And it's like, oh, man, why are they teasing us? <laughs> like, I'd rather have a preview that contains the stuff they showed us, even if it's very broken and only works for a certain flow of things, rather than just something where they're just like, ah, no, we're actually just going to, you know, compile this with the flag that just disables the whole thing. Or with a version from a month ago that had a little bit of stuff, but really just crashes. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> But again, I haven't tried this year's new Sprite Kit stuff. Maybe this, maybe this is the year. Yeah, maybe this the one year where you check out and don't quite have enough time to spend looking at it is the year where they've fixed all these problems and you could have right. picked up all the things you were interested in from day right. one. But I didn't. And this is you never know. No, exactly. Hope springs eternal. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, what else what have you been doing lately besides not watching much WWDC videos? The project we spoke about in the last episode ended, but quite successfully. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was talking in the last episode about how you build a hypermedia API and what that is and what we were trying to do at the time, which was sync a large volume of data between two different data stores, which was in a way that we could fetch new dumps of the data via an FTP endpoint, which is exciting that that still exists. And mm -hmm. it seems to work quite well. So that's been quite fun. I've also did an episode of Giant Robots with Chad, the ThoughtBot CEO, talking about the WWDC keynote. That was good fun. Mm -hmm. We did an hour 
quite fast run through of everything which was really interesting between the two of us on the keynote right. and some of the platform set of the union and that was good fun cool besides my work project i get really intrigued by the ar kit stuff oh yes WWDC. oh yes me too so i immediately open up Xcode code nine to create you know they have like a template project for that and tried to run it on my ipad and it just it just crashed oh no i tried to fix some things and it just crashes it crashes so i have an ipad air an ipad air one which is now you know four years old or whatever and yep. it just it doesn't support any of <laughs> any of the stuff as far as i can tell it only works on ipad pros iphone 7 maybe iphone 6s i'm not sure maybe i forget which it only works on devices with certain cpus right okay and I don't remember what the 6S has. but so And I do have an iPhone 7, but that is my primary phone, and I'm not going to install a beta iOS on it. No, no, I would never do that. So, <laughs> no, it never goes well. Like, I can't do it. I have, like, yeah, I can, I can install it on my iPad that, you know, I very seldom have a real need for, right? And, like, most of what I do on my iPad is typically I might play a game or I'm, you know, using the web browser or email. And it's my secret shame as an app developer is that the best apps are Safari and Mail. Like everything else, I could kind of do without almost. It's it's kind of it's no, that's not entirely true. I guess on my phone, I use a lot of I use like Twitter and things, but on my iPad, I really don't much. I don't know why. I guess I, don't, I actually don't use my iPad that much at all in general. Right, comes up now and then, but not so much. But anyway, I'm fine installing beta iOS on my iPad, which is why I was disappointed that. It didn't work. So now I'm, st- but then I guys started thinking, oh, well, they've got that new 10.5 inch iPad Pro. It doesn't seem too bad. It's a nice device. I but, bought one. <laughs> you did? Okay. Yeah. So you're ahead of me. <laughs> and so it showed up one afternoon. And then about an hour after it arrived, the, I put the beta straight onto it. Good. I was really interested in the multitasking and how they'd mm-hmm. implemented that and how much it might change the way I use the iPad. So something I was right. finding with. When I had an iPad before, because I had the, the same the same one as, as you, that I just kind of didn't use it. Hmm. And then I, I bought the Seven Plus as my my phone upgrade for this for this time around. And I was like, well, I'm really not using the iPad at all anymore because my phone is now huge. Right. But then multitasking, and I was like, this is this is a bit more interesting. Maybe I can actually use it for probably not programming quite yet, but at least not day to day programming. Maybe some fun programming. Right. But actual sensible usage might actually might be useful for for my use case the multitasking is pretty good i'm a fan okay good yes that's one of the things also that is limited on the ipad air it has it supports some of that's already the case in ios 10 there are some things the the ipad air one won't do that the ipad air 2 and the ipad pro will do when it comes to running multiple apps like i think the ipad air I, i can't actually do the the split screen i can do it in a limited way i think i really have never gotten into it but I'm curious to see how it works on in iOS 11. I'm actually pretty intrigued by them adding drag and drop and actually adding stuff to take, taking it beyond what you could do on a desktop computer with with one mouse. Because, you know, with at least what I've seen in the videos of this, you can drag something and then while you're dragging, use another finger to pick something else and add to your selection which you could not do with a mouse. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I think that's going to open us up to some... It's like an iPad version of multitasking that's got quite a lot of broad future in it. 
Mm-hmm. There, there's some stuff that you can do which you'd never consider doing on a, a normal computer as such. Right. I think just having your fingers on the display opens up some things that you couldn't do before. Right. And I mean, and those possibilities were always there. And you know, I've worked on apps, games, and other things using using many fingers, you know, on purpose for that to achieve some interesting effect to do something with two or more fingers that you couldn't do with a single mouse pointer. But it's never been to the point where it's been, well, here's a, you know, this actually creates a new metaphor, a new way of using it. Whereas they've created something that is now wrapped up in UI kit so that you can actually just implement your own dragging and dropping sources and destinations and, and it will just work. So it looks pretty interesting. I've not tried it yet at all though. Right. From what I understand of the implementation, it's they're out of the box on a lot of the def- out of the box text field. So UI text field and text view and et cetera, et cetera, will support dropping into or out of. They won't support the fancy containers right. of things, but it will support support the basics. It will right. mean something like one password, for example, can implement a drag and drop of a password field, hmm. which should be quite fun. Sure. You said you have the you got the new iPad Pro. Have you tried any AR kit stuff? Just even the template demo app that it that it creates out of the box. I've not yet. The day okay. we record this, though, there was a, a video that came out today on the Made with AR Kit Twitter account of a ruler, yeah. a very impressive ruler. <laughs> I mean, I, it's kind I of saw that today also. That's amazing. The, the most obvious, I suppose, application to build with AR Kit, <laughs> but it, it kind of demonstrates how good it is. Right. There are many things on that Made with AR Kit page. It's like wow, like none of them are complete programs, but there are many things that are like wow, that's really interesting. Like that's really, it's fascinating that you can do that and that it works as well as it does. And sure, when there sometimes you see people they're they're walking around the device and it's not a hundred percent smooth what they're looking at, but it's pretty smooth. And considering this is still a beta release of the first iteration of this framework. Imagine what it will look like in a year or two. Yeah, absolutely. Something I'd, I'd read about was that the planes that it's calculating are accurate to like within 3%, hmm. which is presumably very precise for a bunch of cameras, right. which is all it is. It's pretty wild. And probably, I guess, when it finds multiple planes that coincide with it, with each other, like if it's, you know, if, you're, if it's mapping the ground, it says, oh, here's a plane, here's a plane, here's a plane. Oh, they kind of overlap. Oh, I bet that's all one big plane. I assume there's, there's that kind of thing going on. And I think in one of the demo videos that I saw on the Made with AR Kit page, there's a thing where they showed not a flat plane, but an airplane. Like a guy's walking around an airplane kind of on a, on a piece of pavement. And as he's doing that, you can see sort of rectangular planes on the ground being filled in. And I suppose the app that he's doing is he's set up to render whatever planes the plane detection encounters. And as he's walking around, those things kind of move and shift it's just interesting to see like you can kind of get a glimpse of you know what the technology is how it's kind of thinking about stuff it's pretty wild i'm looking forward to playing with this yeah it's definitely one of the top few things on my list to to explore the next is probably some of the the core ml stuff the machine learning and right. how that works with the camera that also seems to be quite impressive there's all stuff that's either out of the box now with the camera, which is stuff that was quite complicated to do manually with computer vision. I remember, I think I saw a demo on that somebody whipped together on the very first day of WWDC where they made an app that like 
it would use the camera to determine whether or not there was a dog in the frame. <laughs> there's just like, there's a label that would either say like no dog or here's a good dog. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Like, and it was pretty instant. Like they would just point the camera around and here, no, no dog. Here's a good dog. And that's the kind of thing that would have, you know, without an API to do that, like where would you even begin? Right. Like, like before that was before they had any, anything like that available. It's like, okay, you'd have to start from scratch obviously. And, that would be a massive undertaking. And now it's something you can kind of roll together a funny demo because they have something that knows how to recognize a dog. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Before it would have been work out how to use OpenCV, work out how the machine learning algorithms work, train right. an engine to understand how to recognize dogs because someone probably hadn't just posted one online. And even <laughs> if they had, it would have been completely incompatible with anything right. else you were trying to do and then you'd have to try and work out how to stitch all of those things together and then eventually you might end up with something something that kind of can tell you and now it's like oh here you go that's a dog yeah it's not a dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's some exciting stuff and i think back to the ar kit mm. one of the things that this really sort of jumped into my head quite recently actually today as i was looking at the made with, made with ar kit page was that I think that many people have either been expecting that Apple would start doing some VR or AR stuff or have been probably more along the lines of booing Apple for not doing AR VR stuff. And suddenly right now they've kind of leapfrogged everyone by putting this into the hands of many people. You know, suddenly we've gone from no one in the world had an iOS device doing really interesting AR stuff anywhere, like no, nothing anywhere near like what a HoloLens could do. And now suddenly we have, okay, the AR kit stuff, it's not the same as HoloLens, but it's in the same league. And suddenly we have thousands and thousands of thousands of developers who have access to it compared to, I don't know how many people have a HoloLens dev kit. Probably not that many. Right. It must be almost a rounding error compared to the amount of iOS users. Right. So it's interesting how they, they've kind of jumped ahead there in a way they've sort of gone from being a company that had really nothing public in this field to having some really sweet demos being made by people just for fun yeah the the demo they gave it during the keynote which was it was a game being played on the table and they also did another get demo which was it's like a lego car that they made it like an exploded view of right i'd seen at the time someone pointing out that that's really quite impressive given the hardware and the scenario they were on and how well it worked and that with a hololens you probably couldn't actually do that without slightly faking the lighting in the room mm -hmm. which i thought was really quite interesting and suggested actually how much work must have gone into making an ar kit what it is now i wonder how long it's been worked on and i guess the other thing that, that this to me it seems obvious that this is kind of an inroad to them having some sort of wearable device and this is another way in which apple can when they want to sometimes leapfrog the competition by making a platform change in one area that they can then transform into something else which i think they, they kind of try to do with the apple tv and it has not really borne a lot of fruit like in the sense of sure you can port your ios app to apple tv and lots of people have done it but far from a majority i would say you know the vast majority of ios apps are not Apple TV apps yet. Yeah, but absolutely. anybody who makes an AR kit based app today, chances are very high that when Apple launches some sort of wearable display technology, 
recompiling for that will be a no-op, or it may not even be recompiled. That may just be an iOS device, you know, maybe running, or it probably won't. It probably, they'll want to call it iOS, like your eye. Wow, that's quite something. <laughs> there we go, iOS. Yeah. That will not confuse anybody. No, it wouldn't, would it? <laughs> I, I'd kind of expect that kind of thing to be much like the watch. It's a peripheral for your existing phone is mm. kind of what I'd expect to see. Except I think it's going to have to have, like the the display technology is going to have to be a lot better than what the watch is. You know, I, or, and plus oh, the, 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 the computing power it's going to have to have. Like either that or an extreme amount of bandwidth between your phone and your head mounted display, which is going to consume a lot of power and stuff. And I, I don't think we have anything that could, can do that yet no so i think we have a very interesting couple of years in front of us because they're gonna roll out something i just saw today a news item they bought a german company that does has some eye tracking platform oh that's very interesting it, it's called sensomotoric instruments and the link that i saw from macrumors.com includes a a woman wearing a really kind of ugly set of eye oh, gears that's quite know. something. They're, <laughs> they're a bit like the kind of things you get when you get your eyes tested and they're, they're slotting the different things in. Yeah. <laughs> That's a look that everybody wants. I assume <laughs> it would get better, but yeah, I think and there's been some speculation before about whether or not they would get involved with Toby, which is a Swedish company. They also make eye tracking hardware. And they've, they're in a cooperation with, it's either with Starbreeze or another Swedish game developer to make some kind of headset like a 3d headset with eye tracking and the idea being that you can use your eyes to look so it's not ar it's vr you use your eyes to look at things in the world and you can either your your what you're looking at can steer what happens or maybe you could optimize things to render highest quality detail in the spot you're looking at instead of everywhere like save a bit of gpu time or focus the gpu on where it's most needed right what they've been working on what i've seen of toby so far is it's been more it is more the vr it's a headset that covers your eyes whereas apple seems to be more looking at ar and that's what is shown in this thing in this i've already forgotten the name of it again this terrible german company named senso motoric instruments i'm not saying it's a terrible german company i'm saying it's a terrible name it's a very academic name a very <laughs> senso motoric <laughs> instruments but apparently apple bought them today so Huh, interesting. It seems very clear to me. Even That even just bolstered it further. I thought as soon as, soon as they were talking about it, I was like, okay, they're going to make some sort of device for this AR kit. And now that this came out, it's like, it seems to me even more certain. But we'll just have to wait. We'll have to wait or we'll have to go get jobs at Apple. The, the, there are the two options for discovering <laughs> what's going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, I've been in touch with recruiters at Apple now and then. They contact me maybe, I don't know, not every year, maybe every second or third year. And I always kind of turn them down because I'm like, I don't want to move to Cupertino. I don't want to work in a giant corporation, actually. I really like working in small companies. But then I read an article about their cool new headquarters. And I'm, I was like, man, that seems really cool. They have a <laughs> they have a four-story high glass door that opens the cafeteria to the outdoors. And it's operated by some sort of mechanism underground that slides it in and out. That's incredible. I would almost work there just for that. <laughs> like the just company, to go down there at lunch and just see the doors. Just, just watch that door open. 
the company that makes the glass for them had to like invent entirely new ways of making glass in order to make <laughs> glass panes the size they wanted for that door. Like they had to like Apple is forcing companies to invent whole new side industries just to build their building. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's somewhat ridiculous. <laughs> so that was the feeling I had when I, when I read the article, but it wore off, actually, because I actually just don't want to work for a giant company. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I messaged a friend of mine last week. I asked him if he wanted to have lunch. He's like, oh, I can't have lunch. I'm in California right now, and I'll be back next week, which is this week. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm about to get to, I think I might get to tour new Apple facility. So that's exciting. I'm, I'm excited to hear if he, if he got to go there and take a look at it. Yeah, I'd love to, love to know what he thought about it in practice. He said he was very excited to, to see the doorknobs that they spent six years designing or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The six-year doorknob project. But, I mean, <laughs> it's a thing. I don't know. <laughs> Otherwise, what's happening with ThoughtBot London in terms of iOS? Do you guys have other projects going on? Are you looking for things? Are you working on things right now? I guess I don't really, I have no idea what, like, what, even what your staffing looks like there, how many iOS-ready developers you have there today. So there's two of us in London. Mm. Both of us split our time between lots of other different things. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time writing Ruby. Right. And, and so does my, my colleague, Ollie. Mm. He's been working on Rails stuff for now for quite a while. So have I. I sort of dip in every so often, hence the thing where I forget the Swift syntax. Sure. <laughs> So there, there's two of us. We haven't had an iOS product in a while, which is a shame. It would be nice to have one. Yep. Iris, that would be good. Shouldn't be impossible. There seems to be work happening out there. Oh, for sure. A, a lot of things <laughs> are apps alongside bigger projects. And sometimes that can be the, the first thing that can either not actually get done or the thing that's still always a couple of months away. Yep, yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. I think that a lot of what I've seen that the app development world has crystallized into is that it's very seldom an app just as an app that is interesting in terms of making money for any company right it's always on top of some system or you know they may have a system where the user interface is entirely through apps through ios and android apps but that everything interesting is happening in the background and all and a lot of what they're doing is based more on building up backend systems and marketing and third-party connections and all these sorts of things where app development is kind of just like not a necessary evil, but it's just sort of like, this is the platform we have today, right? This is where for their users, this is how they reach them. And 10 years ago, it would have been a website. And nowadays it's an app instead. Yeah, absolutely. It means that projects can often be either in parallel iOS and Android or completely at the same time. So we've been doing a lot right. of stuff with React Native to try and help mm. with that problem. I've sure. not used it myself yet. One day I'll have to. It will be interesting to see what that's actually like. But yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a delivery mechanism, the app. Right. And so it might be your entire user experience from an end user's perspective. But in practice, it's an app hitting an API. And that API is wrapping up a lot of that those business processes that are actually making the company work. Which, I mean, it makes sense. But I think it hasn't led to any sort of decline in the amount of work that needs to be done, though. It seems to me, even though, you know, there are however many millions of apps already out in the world, there are just always more coming. There are always more things being done. And at the company that I work at now, we, like we, we seem to never have a shortage of projects that people want to have done. 
there can be a shortage of people who are willing and ready to pay for what they want to have done. And this is something that I don't know if this is specifically to mobile apps, but I feel like in in Stockholm, for instance, in the startup space, the Stockholm tech industry prides itself on being really startup heavy. Like, oh, we have all these startups. Everybody and their brother is a startup, right? Right. But almost without exception, they do not have money. It seems like to get funding in Scandinavia for your startup, you have to have a product essentially done. Like you can't say, hey, we've got a great idea and I've got a great team ready to go. We know exactly how we're going to build this. Here's our plan. Can somebody spot us $2 million for a year to do this or whatever? Like the answer will be no. (laughs) And it seems like what I recall of my time at ThoughtBot was that there were a lot of customers in the U.S., in San Francisco, New York, Boston, other places who they could have found a venture capital firm who gave them a yes, said, okay, yeah, we can we can risk $2 million for a year on your idea here and let's try it out. Whereas here, it seems very much that they want to see that this is proven that it's already built and deployed, at least on a small scale, to a few beta users. And then they're willing to, to supply money for some completion work and more a big sort of you know marketing effort and getting the word out and actually launching like they'll they'll they're willing to fund a launch more than willing to fund construction yeah absolutely it's the same in the uk and my suspicion is that it's probably exactly the same scenario across the whole of europe yeah and in terms of from from like the perspective of the investors they're just so much more risk averse Mm. that they won't put that money in until you have firmly proven that this thing has something in it and some of that i think is probably a lack of investors in the first place if there's a lot less of them then they're overall going to make a lot less investment and the the fight to make those investments is going to be a lot smaller and it's harder to fear that you're going to just completely miss some sort of product as it flies by because you're not going to be the one who catches in on that investment right and so that's why that's, that's where I think a lot of the risk aversion comes from. And it means that trying to raise money is a lot, lot harder. Yeah. And you need a demo with numbers before you're even going to be having productive conversations with angels. And something we see at Thoughtbot in London is that people will come to us with not remotely near amount, enough money to build something. Right. And that's not necessarily that we're hilariously expensive or anything. That's just how much software costs to build and their understanding from that and the amount of money they've got to work with or the amount of money they expected they'd have to work with are completely different. Right. I think people who are not software developers undervalue software development like as a as an activity. Like it doesn't seem like it seems somehow easier than it is. It seems to people who are outside that, though this should be simple. I was replying to a Twitter thread the other day where somebody was saying they were surprised that they never seem to stop getting contacts from idea people who say, hey, I've got an idea for an app. Could you build this for me? I'll (laughs) give you 5% of my company if you build this app for me. And that people don't have an appreciation for that, that idea is not really worth anything on its own, right? And what Don, and I replied to this, I said something like, I think when it comes to real world things, people intuit that just an idea without being able to build the idea is not worth a lot. Anybody can imagine a flying car, right? That idea is very old and very easy to think of. Anybody can think of, wow, that would be cool, a flying car. 
but not everybody can build a flying car. Right. Absolutely. And everyone knows that. Everyone knows I can't build a flying car. Like there's just no way. And it's probably terribly expensive to build a flying car because, geez, that's got to be you know a lot of technology. A lot of things have to happen. Whereas when it's a piece of software, people say, well, you know, it's just a thing on a screen. Like <laughs> I could draw a picture of it and then I could draw another picture of it. Like how hard can it be to make this thing that I can just imagine? It's just pictures on a screen, right? Yeah. All you're doing is is running programs that change the patterns of lights on the screen in the end like <laughs> yeah that's it how hard, that's all it how hard could it be yeah it's got to be think, simpler than that so people just don't really understand the difficulty of it in a general sense and don't understand why any of it takes time what i think is quite interesting is that it's a harder sell for mobile than it is for web things and mm-hmm. it, my theory here is that because the phone is smaller people think it requires less effort to build yes. something for it i definitely think that people believe that which is it's kind of hilarious it's kind of sad also <laughs> it is yeah but yeah i'm, I'm sure you're right because that's been the impression that i get is people think oh this is small just like people think oh that's just a game that must be easy compared to other things right and just like well wait no you've got you've got it completely flipped <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I've, I've i've encountered the same thing where people say oh what it's just an app. It's not like it's a website or something. Well, right. that yeah. doesn't mean it's easier or simpler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that you have this. You have a very similar perspective in London as as I have about Stockholm. Just that there are plenty of startups that cannot get funding for their ideas too easily. Yeah, and I think something that we see being a an agency that you know, let's say, ranks reasonably highly in Google at least, right? That we see a lot of those idea people and they come mm-hmm. through and you tell them how much it costs and then you probably never hear from them again. Right. <laughs> or you do and they go and they will come up to you and reintroduce themselves and they go, oh, oh, you were right. This software development lark is actually quite difficult <laughs> and you were correct and it was going to take as long as you were going to suggest for te- perhaps even longer, which is always something we'll make a point of saying. Right. And it would have been a lot easier if we'd gone with you or one of our competitors or, or whatever, rather than trying to bumble through it them, themselves. Yeah, I remember seeing plenty of that where I've been doing, for a number of years, I've been doing some some sort of tech coaching for companies at an incubator called Sting here in Stockholm. And one of the things that's come up many times, especially in the earlier days when I was, you know, I started doing this when I was at ThoughtBot, I've continued since I left ThoughtBot. But often in, the, in discussions with them, I would mention, you know, the services we provided at ThoughtBot and the kind of things that we could do in building apps or building websites, systems of any kind. And when we started talking about prices, they were like, oh, I was like, oh, no, no, we can, there's no way we can afford that. And they would say, but I know a guy who knows a guy whose brother runs this development shop in the Ukraine or anywhere, and they're going to do it for a quarter of the price that you're telling me right now. And and I know it's going to be great because this guy who knows the guy whose brother, he's my best friend and the other guy's his best friend. So I know it's going to be great. And there's it's really hard to sort of, I can't like sort of beat somebody about the head and say, well, no, you're, you're probably wrong because you're never going to meet these people. And it's not going to, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work the way you hope it's going to work. And I'm, I'm not trying to sort of bash on people in the Ukraine or anything. I think there is an inherent problem often in some kinds of remote work where things are set up to fail. Like the, because a lot of these companies do not work in a way that is conducive to success. 
Right, absolutely. When I was working at ThoughtBot and when I'm working at Dynamo now, we're always very much communication is key and trying to involve the customer in the process as much as possible in particular ways is a part of how we do work and a part of what makes things actually succeed is that the customer is involved every step of the way. Whereas a lot of these firms are like, oh, send us a spec and in six weeks you'll have a product. And this is, you know, the the person ordering it doesn't know how to make any kind of spec, much less the kind of spec that will magically tell this person in a foreign country who they're never going to meet and never going to talk to exactly their full vision and how it should work. Like, it's just like, that doesn't work. It wouldn't work if it was another firm in Sweden. You know, it's not, it's nothing to do with, with culture. It's just to do with distance and products being set up so that there is too little communication and the ideas are not going to get back and forth efficiently. Right, absolutely. It's a common business model as well. There's something I see with talking to people at work at different agencies in the UK is they'll often have a sales team in central London where it's expensive mm. and then they'll have their team in another city. So mm. they might have one in, let's pick a random city, Liverpool, for example, mm. which is reasonably up north and a lot, the cost of living is a lot cheaper and therefore you can presumably pay people a lot less. Right. But then your, your staff, the people who you're going to be working with are, are really far away and you get that across Europe as well, where they'll have an office in London, but outsourced to, for example, Ukraine or Poland or one of one of the, these other countries. And right. it's great economically, like the finances make a lot of sense. Mm. It looks great on a bit of paper, but in practice, you're not able to communicate with people because you can't sit down with them. And if you can't sit down with them or you can't jump on a video call or, right. or what have you, it's not working well. Many of the ones I've seen, there are artificial barriers created by these companies so that the company ordering this work never gets to talk to the developers. They only get to talk to like a project manager. Yep. Everything is mediated through this this one person, maybe two people or something, and who is somehow supposed to be coordinating everything and it just seems to never work. And the and the story I would hear from these people again and again, I would meet them six months later or a year later and they still wouldn't have stuff they were hoping to have done in four or five weeks. Like, no, we're still not quite there yet. And we've spent, you know, <laughs> by that time they will have spent twice what they would have spent for our services for a month or two. And they still have a, a system that is, you know, nothing is done the way they want it to and they're completely unsatisfied. And I guess I'm not enough of a spoil sport to try and tell them in advance, hey, this is just going to fail, give up. Like I try, I can, I can try and, you know, give them some, some caveats and say like, you should, well, you should think about this, think about this. I've seen some problems with this approach, but in the end, they're going to do what they're going to do. And again, because they have so little venture capital, you know, they're pinching pennies and trying to figure out, well, this seems cheaper. I guess we're to do the cheaper thing. Yeah. I think from their perspective, it's really quite hard to understand where that value is. Right. And usually they're quite hell-bent on what they're going to do anyway. So even if you were to tell them that they're wrong, they're just going to hear you're wrong and nothing else. And they're not going to hear <laughs> the reasons for why they might want to think about something in a slightly different way, which would help get that product right. built in a in a better way and in a way that they will be happy about in the end. Right. Oh, well, startups can't learn. No, it's, it's always it's the same cycle. I think you could hear me talk about this in the same basically in the same way in in two and then five and then 10 years time we'll right. be having the same there'll be the same story we'll just have longer beards each time yeah telling the same thing 
sitting around the fire with a pipe complaining about how the kids can't build software anymore. Well, we've been going for a while here. Should we wrap this up, do you think? Yeah, let's call it a day. Okay, show notes for this episode can be found at buildphase.fm slash 119. You can reach us by email at hosts at buildphase.fm and find us on Twitter at buildphase. It's great if you can go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. We are still only accepting five stars. We may open up to four stars one time, but not today. Only five stars today. Thank you very much. But even more than that, also maybe write some words. Write some words in your review about what you think about Build Phase. And if you write negative things, we'll probably ask iTunes to delete them. That's fine. You can try. But don't. Write nice things, because we're nice people. We try. (laughs) We try. We do what we can. All right. Until next time. Good talking to you, Nick. Good talking to you, Jack. All right. See ya. All right. Goodbye.